please turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're going to look at the first 12 verses and that's really just uh, because of time constraints. I could have gone on and looked at the whole chapter but um, well, there's always next week if the Lord tarries. Romans chapter 3 verses 1 to 12 and we're going to consider the advantage of the Jew, the advantage of the Jew. We'll start by reading those first 12 verses. What advantage then have the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much, every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what, if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our right unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God have more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Up until now in the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans, we've seen that everyone is unrighteous or sinful before God. In chapter 1 we saw the unrighteousness of all who suppress and hold down the truth about God, even though the invisible things of God are clearly seen in creation. That is very evident in our day and age with school children being indoctrinated with the lies of evolution and the Big Bang being presented as fact. As such, people exchange the truth for a lie. Instead of worshipping the Creator, they worship the things that he has created and God gives them up to their vile affections. In chapter 2, we saw that even religious people can most certainly still be unrighteous. For example, the self-righteous Jews were circumcised in the flesh. They had the law and their boast was in God. Despite all of that, Paul told them that it is the doers of the law that shall be justified. And he demonstrated very clearly 
that even though they had the law, they most certainly were not doers of the law. They were guilty of the same sins that they accused others of committing. Their circumcision counted for nothing and that what really counts is having a circumcised heart. For moralistic Jews to be told that they were under the same condemnation as idol-worshipping pagans would have been hard to hear. Perhaps they might have been deeply offended, wounded in their pride, or simply bewildered as they considered that, that out of all the nations of the world, the fact is God chose them to be his peculiar people. God chose the Jews. God had delivered the Jews out of slavery in Egypt and he had given them a land flowing with milk and honey. God had made a covenant with the Jews and he gave them his laws. They traced their ancestry back to Abraham. Also, they were descendants of King David, who was a man after God's own heart. And so on and so on. Yet for all that, Paul was telling them that they were under the same condemnation as pagan Gentiles. By exposing the unrighteousness, not just of the Gentiles, but also of the religious Jews, Paul was beginning to unpack a key statement that he had already made in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Moving on to chapter 3 today, we shall see the various questions that might be raised by self-righteous Jews, perhaps that even Paul himself may have asked when he was a self-righteous Pharisee. And those objections are well and truly answered. Paul anticipated various objections in light of what he had just said at the end of chapter 2 about Judaism not being external but internal and circumcision not being of the flesh but of the heart. And so in chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul said, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? The, then answering his own question, in verse 2, Paul said, Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. There was no denying from Paul that not only did the circumcised Jews have an advantage over the Gentiles, they had several advantages. But for now, the greatest of them was mentioned. Unto Jews were committed the oracles of God. The oracles of God refer to the entire Old Testament Bible, from Genesis to Malachi. The Jews were the custodians of all of the written utterances of God, 
And they had them long before the Gentiles nations ever set eyes on them. That was without a doubt a tremendous advantage. I like what the hymn writer William Cowper said about the advantage of the Jews. He said, They and they only amongst all mankind received the transcript of the eternal mind, were trusted with his engraven laws and constituted guardians of his cause. Theirs were the prophets, theirs the priestly call, and theirs by birth the saviour of us all. Looking now at verse 3. For what, if some did not believe, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? In verse 3, Paul dealt with any suggestion that the oracles of God were anything but an advantage to the Jews who might argue that if the law condemned them, which it did, then how can the oracles of God be described as an advantage? What use are those oracles of God to the Jews? But that is the same as arguing that God's faithfulness in committing the Old Testament scriptures to the Jews were nullified by his faithfulness and by their unfaithfulness. Paul tactfully spoke of the unfaithfulness of some of the Jews to the oracles of God and that implies that there were nevertheless others who were faithful. However, it's quite clear when you read the Bible that the ones who were faithful to the oracles of God were far and few and they were a tiny remnant at any given time in Jewish history. In answer to any accusation that God was not faithful in giving his oracles to the Jews and that their unrighteousness was all God's fault, forgiving them the law in the Old Testament in the first place, because that's what they they may have said. That's a, a, an objection that's being raised here. Paul said in verse 4, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. In other words, Paul most emphatically rejected any accusation that the unfaithfulness of some, some doesn't always have to be just a few by the way, as I say Paul was being diplomatic, some can be a lot of people. So Paul most emphatically rejected any accusation that the unfaithfulness of some of the Jews meant that the oracles of God that were given to them were a disadvantage. He did that by challenging people to put God on trial, which is something that we're all very good at doing anyway. And when people do that, they will see that God is true and God is justified. Looking at verses 5 and 6 here. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? 
We'll read on to verse 8. For if the truth of God have more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. The objections continue here. I hope you understood that first one there. What's the good of giving us the so-called advantage of the oracles of God when those same oracles condemn us? And then you can, then the, the, the twisted mind blames God. It's not us, it's God for giving them these oracles in the first place. That was the first one. The second one here, Paul dealt with those who might further argue that if God is seen to be righteous as a result of the unfaithfulness, which in verse 5 he called unrighteousness, of some who were disobedient to the oracles that were committed to them, why then should they further be punished? If their unrighteousness magnifies the righteousness of God, why should they be punished? After all, their unrighteousness served to highlight the righteousness of God. It is as if they were suggesting that their disobedience ought to be rewarded and not punished. This is the twisted sinful mind working again. Paul anticipating this kind of question, this kind of objection. Again, Paul very forcefully dismissed that charge by pointing out that it is precisely because God is righteous that he will judge the world. He doesn't let people off. He doesn't say, well, I'm not going to punish them because they, their unrighteousness has magnified, their, their unrighteousness has magnified my, my righteousness. We have a God who punishes. And he will judge the world. He has committed all judgment to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he comes again, will judge the living and the dead. All the nations will be gathered before Jesus. Even though we live in a world where unrighteous judges do not punish people in accordance with the severity of their crimes, I'm sure I'm not the only one who gets frustrated at lenient sentences that are meted out in courts. We all do, because God has given us that sense of justice. Even though we are all sinners, we do have a sense of justice. And and words of scripture like life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, they strike a chord with us, and they should do. But we do not see justice in our courts. We do not see people being punished in accordance with the severity of their crimes, but we ought to be forever thankful that God is holy and he is the righteous judge of all the world. And his judgment is just. Having already exposed the guilt of the Gentiles in chapter 1 and the Jews in chapter 2, we can see in these verses that Paul went on to bring the two together by quoting various scriptures which plainly declare all to be sinners. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are 
all under sin. Having already just declared that the Jews have great advantages over the Gentiles, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God, Paul said that even so, the Jews were no better than the Gentiles. Also, by using the word we, Paul included himself in that statement, and he declared all to be under sin. In other words, all are transgressors of God's holy laws. There is one exception, one exception with respect to all being under sin, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who in Acts chapter 7 and verse 52 is called the just one, or the righteous one. And that is an acknowledgement that Jesus is faultless. We'll read verses 10 through to 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Paul began to quote the Old Testament scriptures to support what he was saying. Not that he needed to. Paul didn't have to refer back to the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament scriptures are just as, just as valid. Every bit as much as the Old Testament. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is God-breathed from, the, from Genesis through to Revelation. First of all, Paul was saying in verse 10 that no one is righteous through trying to satisfy the law's demands. That is something that he had already hammered home to the self-righteous Jews in chapter 2 and it is something that all who imagine themselves to be obedient to God's laws in our day and age need to hear. There is no one righteous, no not one. In verse 11, Paul said, there is none that understandeth. In one of Paul's other epistles, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, he explained that a lack of understanding of spiritual things is caused by blindness and hardness of heart. There are literally billions of people in the world who imagine themselves to be spiritual when in fact they have not been born again by the Holy Spirit and they are anything but spiritual. They have hard hearts and their understanding is darkened. If you are a Christian, you may well have experienced the hardness of heart of some of the people that you have spoken to about the Lord Jesus Christ. Often that hardness and that lack of spiritual understanding is audible with angry responses and with eyes that glaze over when you present the gospel to them. In verse 11, Paul said, There is none that seeketh after God. None that seeketh after God. That's quite a statement to make. The clear implication of that statement is that all 
other religions, far from being sinful man's attempts to seek God, are in reality man's attempts to hide from the only true God and from Jesus Christ, whom he have sent. How many billions of people in the world does that apply to? There is none that seeketh after God. Think of all the religions in this world. None of them are seeking after God. In verse 12, by saying, there is none that doeth good, Paul was quoting David, who said the precise same thing in Psalm 14 and verse 1, about a thousand years earlier. That's highly significant, that. It speaks not only of the universality of unrighteousness, but the timelessness of it. In other words, it still holds true today. What David said a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, and what Paul said in the first century holds true today. There is none that doeth good. Still in verse 12, Paul said, they are all gone out of the way. How would you feel if you were gone out of the way on a journey and you got yourself well and truly lost, up the creek and without a paddle? You would have no peace until you were found and rescued. And you've heard this testimony from me many times over and it's applicable now. Speaking from experience, having got myself completely lost in woods when I was a teenager, about 16, darkness fell and I couldn't see a thing in front of me. I yelled and eventually two men with torches rescued me. I suppose I could have felt embarrassed, I could have felt stupid when I was rescued by those two men, but I couldn't care less. I was too busy being thankful to my two rescuers. Something far more scary is the fact that we have all gone out of the way and we have all strayed from our maker, almighty God, because of sin. And that is the natural inclination of sinful man to follow his own perverse path to everlasting destruction. It's a deliberate action spurred on by a hard and unbelieving heart. As Spurgeon said, they, that's everybody, like stubborn heifers, have sturdily refused to receive the yoke. Like errant sheep, they have found a gap and left the right field in direct defiance of the law of God. That was clearly the case with Adam, who ate of the forbidden fruit despite a clear warning from God. And we are no better than Adam. In conclusion, none of us are righteous through meeting the demands of God's holy laws. When you think of the Ten Commandments, they can be summarised by two great commandments. To love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. 
When you think of those two great commandments there, loving God with your whole being, I won't ask you to put your hand up if you love God with your whole being. I won't embarrass you. I won't embarrass myself either. Or loving your neighbour as yourself. Yeah, when it suits you. What Paul was saying in verse 10, under the inspiration of God, is that none of us are obedient to God's laws. There is none that seeketh after God. That will be clearly evident when the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall come again in judgment and the unrighteous will say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We have all gone out of the way. Therefore, repent, believe the gospel, for the good news is that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is good news. The best news you will ever hear. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and he will save them. Amen.